Hello, grit men and grit women and all the folks out there that are doing the best they can to live a life with grit. Grit Man here, and welcome to episode two of the Grit Men Show, where we believe it's all right to be a man and that the world can use more grit. Please note this show is being recorded without a mask for quality and training purposes. My grit men number is seven. All right, here we go, episode two, which means we had an episode one, and by golly, some of you actually listened. Didn't know if we'd get two people to listen or two million. And while we're closer to two than two million, all the folks I've talked to that are in the podcast space have told me that episode one did really well. We were off to a great start. I don't know what that means. Perhaps we're a tall midget or we've got unrecognized potential, but hey, I'd rather be off to a good start than a bad start. I don't know the size of our herd, but I got to tell you that I'm full of hope and optimistic There are way more coals burning than I thought. They're still lit. They're out there. This idea or this mission to spread grit, it's alive. As of this recording, we had listeners in 15 states and even two across the pond in Scotland. So we're spreading grit. Feedback has, for the most part, been overwhelmingly positive, which I'm forever grateful for and appreciate you listening. A couple things that were pretty funny or noteworthy. One listener sent me a note and said that they were offended by the name of our show. To which I wrote back and thanked them for reaching out to me. And then I said that I don't believe we offended you. I believe you got out of bed offended and somehow you decided to blame that on us. They responded that they were going to let our sponsors know about this interaction. To which I responded, by all means, do what you got to do. It's a free country. They must have been highly disappointed when they found out that we don't even have any sponsors. Another one, I goofed. Uh, This one's on me, my good buddy Chris Wynn, who's a discerning, it's a very discerning mind. He picked up on this. When I was talking about influences for the show and going to the Masters and sitting behind 12 Green, well, guys, you can't sit behind 12 Green. I sat behind 12 T in the grandstand, looked to my left, saw the green over on 11 the players would walk over and tee off on 12 and then after they hit that tee shot there are no patrons allowed so they go and put their balls out on 12 walk over to 13 so no I was not behind the green on 12 if I was that would have been cool because I was either playing in the masters or a marshal but I would have been arrested so thank you for picking up on that I love your feedback because that means you're listening all right Wherever you found this episode, be it Apple, Spotify, Anchor, do me a favor and hit the subscribe button, please. We're going to release new episodes when they're ready. That could be every week, every two weeks, maybe once a month. But the best way to get the new release is to to subscribe. Please also follow us on Instagram. Our page is Grit Men Show. And we've even got a website now that's live, gritmenshow.com. Check that out. I bribed my 12-year-old daughter with a new Lululemon outfit. If she'd make our website, and I think she did a heck of a job. So we're a small market team over here. I had to find unique ways to motivate my players. and So Lululemon was how it motivated my daughter. For other feedback, either positive or negative, questions, sponsorships, or just ideas, chris at gritmenclub.com. One more thing I need to get off my chest. I'm out in the field every day, and I notice trends or observations and there's a disturbing one that I'm seeing my family loves to eat out 
and there's an increasing number of people that are being rude to waiters and waitresses. And that just needs to stop. Grit men are polite to waiters and waitresses. We don't tolerate rude behavior. For the most part, I think they're doing the best they can. Maybe it's their first job. Maybe it's the only job they can get. They're probably short-staffed. People, get over yourself. You can wait a little longer for that margarita. You're not that important. It doesn't make you look good to talk down to a waiter or waitress. Need that behavior to stop. All right, thank you for letting me get that off my chest. We got a great guest today, Phil Garner. I've known him for a long time. He's had a relationship with my dad since 1982 when he came to town and needed a CPA, and somehow him and my dad got connected. So he, Phil worked with me when I was playing baseball, was always there to give me pointers, and we connect a couple times a year now, usually over golf. He had me out last week, hosted me at his club, played around to golf, and then sat down for this interview. And I watched him as we were playing. I watched how he treated others. You can learn a lot about someone when you play golf with them. Are they only into themselves? Are they interacting with the group? Do they fix their divots? Do they repair their ball marks? How do they re- greet the marshal when he pulls up? Well, I will tell you, Phil's a heck of a man. He's very conscientious. He's very thoughtful. That marshal pulled up. Hey, Bob, how you doing? How you been? Good to see you. Just very polite, well-mannered. We need more men like Phil Garner. He has great energy, cares about others, and he's a heck of a storyteller, which you're about to hear. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you for listening. Get out and find your grit. Guys, he's a lot like Nails. He plays like Nails. He's tough as Nails. He likes to call himself a grit man, whatever that means. Quit with my daddy. It's been a year since I've seen a deer at a small mouth on the line. The other day I hooked a monster, and as I reeled him in, I thought, man, it feels good to be country again. Well, Phil, welcome to the Grit Men Show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Chris, and uh, I'm going to give you a shout out because I think that uh, talking about grit and grit in men and uh, the lack of it or what we need to get back to in our society is very important. I think there's an assault on young men, boys, and uh, men in general, masculinity in general in our society. So this is a good time to talk about it. Well, I've always appreciated your candor and honesty and conviction. You have strong opinions, and I can't wait for you to share them with our audience. <laughs> but first off, how did you become scrap iron? Well, there's a couple of versions on that. I'm going to tell you the first version. And uh, when I was traded to the to the from uh, uh, to the Pittsburgh Pirates from the Oakland A's, uh, it, the trade involved three players uh, that went from uh, Pittsburgh to Oakland, and six players that came from Oakland to Pittsburgh, or, or vice versa. Six players went to Oakland, and four. So. Um, I was asked, or Milo Hamilton, our radio announcer, many people in Houston will know, remember who Milo Hamilton is, but after three or four days of playing in spring training, they asked um, Milo Hamilton, well, or Milo Hamilton asked Willie Stargell, actually, who is this guy, Phil Garner, that we traded all those players for? And uh, Willie Stargell said, well, he's a little feller. You can beat on him and you can bend him, but you can't break him. He's like an old piece of scrap metal. And so Milo Hamilton picked up the moniker Scrap Iron and started calling me Scrap Iron. And and uh, I, I think it it uh, it was pretty good. I liked that. I, I actually thought it was uh, 
a badge of honor for me to walk around being called scrap iron all those years. But uh, Dave Parker, one of my teammates in Pittsburgh, said the reason they call me scrap iron is because every time a ball hit my glove, it sounded like it was hitting scrap metal. So <laughs> I like version one. Yeah, version one's a little better. <laughs> yeah. Well, tell me about your upbringing and, and how you were raised by your parents. Well, that's interesting because in our um, – Day when I in my younger days we grew up in a little town called Rutledge, Tennessee, and it was a small farming poor poor farming town east of Knoxville, Tennessee, forty miles east of Knoxville, Tennessee, where the University of Tennessee is located. Forty miles in those days was about a, a one and a half hour trip, and we did it once a year to go into the big city of Knoxville. Today it would be just a suburb, you know. So we stayed in the country. We grew up in the country. I had a mountain behind my house, and from the time I was about uh, 12 years old, uh, I had worked a, um, a paper route from my earlier from, from about 10, and I'd been doing my paper route, and I'd saved enough money to buy a shotgun, and I bought a shotgun, and somewhere around 11 and 12, I would go out squirrel hunting out our back door with myself and my best friend Larry Whit in those in that small town, and we would do that before we'd go off to school, or we'd go shoot, you know, all summer long. We'd do all those kind of things uh, that um, you know would be considered crazy in a lot of uh, people's uh, courts this year. And so, uh, but this is the way we grew up. Uh, so we had. We worked. It, um, tomatoes were a big crop, and tobacco was a big crop in the area. So somewhere around 10 years old, I was being paid 25 cents to go out to cut, spear, and hang tobacco when tobacco crops would come in, and to pick tomatoes when the tomato crop. And we also had strawberries. So we would make a little bit of money along the way to buy the shotgun shells, and their 22 later picked up a 22. So it was good life. We had everything we needed. And what did your dad do for a living? Well, my dad was a minister, and uh, he pastored the First Baptist Church of uh, of Rutledge, Tennessee. And so, uh, unfortunately, I was known as the preacher's kid, so I had a double life. Uh, I had to to spend a lot of time at church, and and, uh, then I had a little mean side on me on the other side, but not really mean you know we just we were full we were boys we were full of energy and um liked to to go out in a rough house we liked to as a matter of fact we got into uh, one of our neighbors had a um, a big um cornfield that was uh, started planted in corn and the corn had gotten uh, well it was slightly over over our heads as young kids and so we decided it would be a great place to take those corn stalks pull them up and they made great missiles and so we started having wars uh, larry Whit and myself and a couple of other young guys around the neighborhood and we were real didn't realize but by the afternoon was over we had destroyed probably a good three or four hundred square feet of this guy's corn farm well the rest of my allowance for the next two months of uh, working uh, picking tomatoes and cutting spear and tobacco went to pay this uh, farmer my dad made me pay the guy for the damage I had done. I don't know if any of the other kids had to do that, but we grew up having to accept responsibility for what we did, both good and bad. There was no excuses. And God forbid in those days, if um, if I came home with a, a bad mark on the report card or the teacher had called home because uh, the teacher was always right, there was never a time when 
I was in the right and dad defended me or mom defended me. It was a case of, okay, what did you do and, and how are you going to fix it? So from a very early age, you know, we had to accept responsibility and, and we had, we had a, the freedom of doing some things too, that I think uh, sometimes kids today aren't allowed to do that. You told me a story today about stealing your uncle's lighter and, and, and coming home and, and having a dad that taught you right from wrong. Can you tell that story? Well, I, I did, and I, I don't like this story, but, but I think it, it deserves to be told because uh, my dad, although he's a minister, the sparing the rod to spoil the child was his motto, and he didn't spare the rod at all. And uh, if if I was wrong, and, and you know when you're wrong, when you steal something, you know you're wrong, that's because you hide it. You just don't walk out the door saying, I have this, you know. Right. You put it in your pocket. You don't tell anybody. When you get back to your room, you hide it under your bed and that's exactly what i did my uncle was a smoker and um, had a this really nice looking lighter and i took a liking to that lighter and so i decided it should be mine well my dad came to me and said uh did you take uncle richard's lighter no dad i did not i swear i did not take that lighter he said are you sure you didn't take that lighter <laughs> and so i'm sure i didn't take that lighter it didn't accidentally jump in my pocket well he found it in my room a couple of days later and that's when the beatings came yeah. <laughs> and so uh the beating first beating was because he lied because i uh, started the lighter the second beating came because i was uh i had lied and i have not lied since now when you become a baseball manager you have to tell some white lies every now and then it's it's to save you know uh, the people involved in, in some of the issues but when it, if anything of importance I never lied in, in my life and again. you learned so, that lesson at seven learned years that old. Le- yeah i learned that <laughs> lesson early on i'm just looking over my shoulder if i'm starting to tell a lie if i'm looking over my shoulder you know i'm waiting on my dad to come and spank me and i certainly didn't want to get spanked from my mother because she dad preferred a belt which was painful but my mom preferred a switch which was really painful (laughs) let's get into your athletic career did you play all sports growing up well what's interesting in our small town where i grew up there until i was um, a, a sophomore in high school we only had basketball and we played uh, my dad and another guy, uh, uh, J.W. Wolfenbarger, uh, uh, got a baseball team together because we didn't have officially any of those things in, in high school at the time or in elementary school. So we had a, a baseball team that we would travel to the neighboring communities and play. And then by the time we got in high school, we played baseball but or basketball. And, and what we did do, though, is we got together. The local kids in the community, we didn't have but probably 20 kids in, in our um, in our little county seat. Rutledge was the county seat where the courthouse was. And we would get together, and during the baseball season, we'd play baseball. The only team you could see on, on TV usually were the Yankees and they, whoever they played. So everybody's favorite player was Mickey Mantle. So we'd watch a couple innings of the baseball game and then immediately go out and start acting like Mickey Mantle and, and – and and play baseball and then when basketball season was in we went we we had an old tree that was had a backboard tacked to it and we played basketball and when football season came along we had uh, the churchyard and plenty of free open land to play football so we did all three of the main sports and my dad 
what actually had played golf is um, uh, first pastorate was in Knoxville, Tennessee, and part of that pastorate was a membership in a golf club. So my dad had played golf, and he was a pretty good golfer. So I had golf clubs that were in the house, and we had a few golf balls. So we'd just stick a hole, you know, a flag up somewhere and hit the ball to the hole. So we we played all of those sports, different parts uh, part of the season, and mixed in hunting and fishing, and uh, and then doing you know doing our work along the way so we had full lives nobody sat around in the house you were out the door when the sun came up at what point did you start dreaming or have aspirations to play professional baseball well as early as i can remember um i i it would i i couldn't tell you honestly what the date was but as far back as i can remember whether it was five seven wherever i always thought that i was going to be a professional ball player my actual first i really loved to play basketball when i finally was able to get into high school and get into a gym I thought boy this is this is great fun you know you have to play while it's raining you don't play when it's sleeting you know or, <laughs> or it's hotter and all get out well you're air condition. i really kind of like that idea and so i love to play basketball i actually got more basketball basketball scholarship offers than I did uh, uh, baseball or football and so um, but I always felt like baseball was I could see basketball it was coming uh, Tennessee at that time used to play a one three one offense and they had a, a smaller guy playing uh, as the guard but very quickly all the other teams you could see you know you had to be over six feet tall and I was not if you were going to play basketball so that wasn't going to work and I wasn't a big hunking beast to play football even though I had a few offers in smaller colleges so um, baseball was going to be the sport so you go to the University of Tennessee talk about that experience <clears throat> I, I I did I was fortunate because the um, principal of the high school in Rutledge where I was grown up for most of the time uh, put in a good word for me at the University of Tennessee even though I had transferred to a school in Knoxville Tennessee and um on that recommendation, the uh, um, head coach at the University of Tennessee gave me a partial scholarship. So I lived at home. I had books and tuition. I lived at home that for my first year, uh, my freshman year. And as, would, as it turned out, that year was a year that the NCAA voted to allow freshmen to play in spring sports, golf, tennis, baseball, I think swimming, maybe, you, you could compete. Prior to that, freshmen couldn't compete at the varsity level. You had to wait to your sophomore year. So, um, And as good fortune would have it, in the first game of the season, our shortstop broke his finger on the second play of the game. And so here I'm thrust into the to the limelight and, and played for the rest of the year. And so they shifted the uh, – second baseman over the shortstop and so I played second base and, and shortstop some so um, as it turned out I had a pretty good season so it was uh, it was the start of something good so I was confident I wasn't smart enough to know not to be kind I just you know when you grow up and, and you don't have a lot of people telling you can't do things you know you don't even think about failure in that sense so uh, I think it was very fortunate that all those things fell into place in the second year at University of Tennessee I started getting some national claim because I led the nation in home runs with 12 per at bat so so we only we had a 31 game 32 game schedule at Tennessee but we always had about four rained out or snowed out so we ended up with like a 28 game season so I had 12 home runs somebody in California had 
15 home runs, but they played a 70-game schedule. So, so I started getting some, some notoriety after that sophomore year. There's a story I found about how you had to bail out one of your teammates at Tennessee, and, and I believe your wife's involved in that story too. Maybe it was a girlfriend. Tom, well, can you tell? Yeah. Well, well, you know, a lot of things happen. You know, when you're when you're in college. I had met my future wife in college, and the only thing um, she came from a poor family too. But her dad had lent lent them their little Mustang. It was a little six cylinder Mustang, and so she had that on campus. And I had that in a particular night. And one of our teammates, who was absolutely the the funniest guy on the planet, and actually a great ball player. His name was Richard Walkney, and we called him C.W. Moss because he looked like the driver that was in the the actor in the Bonnie and Clyde movie who was named C.W. Moss. So, so we always called him C.W. But he was the funniest guy you ever met. And he was always into trouble. He was from, from Tampa, Florida. Great player. One of the, actually one of the better players on our team. And but was always into trouble. He he liked to drink a little bit, and I I don't uh, I, we nobody's ever figured out how he got through school because he partied the entire five years that he was there. But he wanted to borrow Carol's car this particular night, and so I okayed it with Carol. And so Richard had gone out, and as was typically the case, had a few drinks and talked a bottle of whiskey and put it in the car and spilled it in the car. Little to my knowledge that he had done this, so. We're all looking at curfew time, which was 11 o'clock, and Richard's not in. So we're all peeking out the window, and where is Richard? And so the coach is going to do curfew. And so all of a sudden, we see our coach uh, pull in and uh, uh, park in front of the athletic dorm. In those days, we had the men were all in an athletic dorm. All the, all the athletes were in one dorm if you're on scholarship. And so... <clears throat> We still don't see Richard. All of a sudden, right after our coach Bill Wright was his name, coach Bill Wright parks in his spot and he gets in the lobby. Here comes Richard screaming in, and, you know, with a Mustang going like he's going into a pit stop, you know, and parks uh, in the lot, just doesn't pull into a place, just leaves it right in the middle of the parking lot and jumps out and runs up the back of the stairs and comes into, into my room and says, you got to cover for me. You got to cover for me. I'll get kicked off with scholarship. And I was the do good guy, so I'd never been in trouble. Okay, Richard, go into your room. So Richard goes in the room, starts brushing his teeth real quick. And no sooner than he got the toothbrush in his mouth, <laughs> uh, the, uh, uh, Coach Wright opens the door and sees that Richard's in there. So everybody thinks it's okay. And so. <clears throat> now he's checked the rooms and he wanted to make sure Richard was in the room. So now he goes back to get in his car and we're all looking out the window watching what's going on. And when he starts to back out, Richard has absolutely stopped dead behind him. So he can't get out of the lot. So he gets in the car to to move it down, you know, just to put it in neutral and let it roll down the hill a little bit. Well, the minute he gets in the car, <laughs> he jumps out of the car and Walkney comes back around the room and says, Oh no. It's his problem. We got a problem. You got to cover. You got to cover. So he tells me again, you got to cover. So, okay, no problem. And so here he comes, and we hear him coming down the hall, and boy, he is mad. You can hear the steam coming out of his ears. He opens the door, and he said, Walkney. And Walkney says, I didn't have the car. Garner had it. <laughs> so coach comes around to my room, and he says, Yeah, the car. I said, Yes, sir, I did. And he said, Meet me at five o'clock in the morning at the racetrack, at our uh, running track, our track and field. Oh, boy, I didn't sleep at all that night. I'm 
getting a lot of national attention. I'm going to get drafted. And so now I'm thinking, uh-oh, my career is going down the tubes here. I'm going to have to buckle down and study. I'm not really wanting to study right now. And so as it turns out that morning, I ran five miles with about less than five-minute miles. I was running for my life. And Coach Wright was tapping his watch and looking at it. And we had a doubleheader that day against Auburn. So I ran – I got the five miles done and ran it in record time, certainly for all of us <laughs> baseball players, and hit two home runs in the doubleheader and won both games in the doubleheader with my home runs. And so after the game, Coach Wright came up to me and said, uh, I'd be careful, but it might be okay if you have a drink every now and then. <laughs> and so, so it all ended well. And so I talked to Richard Walker on, all, on many occasions now. He's a good friend. What a great story. Talk about getting drafted. I, I believe you got drafted a few times and then when you decided to sign. Well, I did get drafted originally by the Montreal Expos. And, you know, when you, do, when you get drafted, you know, you start thinking and things of big money and uh you know glamorous lifestyles and all that kind of stuff well when they called me I, that went out the window real quick they said uh we've got a bus ticket for you and five hundred dollars to help you get down to florida and i said bus ticket not even an airline ticket and they said well you need to go ahead and get on down and get started with your career and i said you're five hundred dollars I, I just why would you offer me five hundred I mean you know if I'm worth nothing why would you even you know offer me five hundred and so I was doing my own negotiations no such thing as, a, as an agent in those days and so they just kept saying we we like it but you need to get on down and get your career started and I said well no I'm not going to do that um asked me how much I wanted and for some reason I pulled $15,000 out of the air I, I don't even know where I got the figure other than I could get a decent car for about $15,000 I think that's probably where I got the number so they kind of snickered at that and said well you need to be a big power hitter home run hitter to get that kind of money so they didn't budge and so I went off to liberal Kansas to play college summer baseball in liberal Kansas which was really a great venue for kids wanting to improve their college career and and, and maybe get good enough to to go to the pros so I'd been out there for a, uh, a few games and and was doing well we played in the fairgrounds the baseball field was and it had a a, a dirt car racetrack that went around it and I'd hit a couple of home runs out into the to the racetrack, and so Montreal sent a scout out there to uh, to try to get me to sign. And so they showed up, and he said um, uh, that the first night he was there, he introduced himself and uh, said, "Well, um, I, want, I came to watch you play, and hope we can get something settled here, and all this kind of stuff." And he said, "How much are you asking?" And I said, "Well, I'm asked for fifteen thousand dollars." He said, Whoa. "He said you got to be a power hitter. I don't know if we can do that." Okay, and so that night I hit a, a three-run homer, and we eventually won the game, but I hit it out in the middle of the racetrack. And so after the game, I was feeling pretty good about myself, and he didn't even acknowledge about the power, and I kind of missed it. He said, well, I, one home run doesn't make you a power hitter. And I said, well, I'll come out tomorrow, and I'll hit another one for you. And I'm getting real cocky now, and it's just actually exactly the way I said it. And so the next day, Burt Hooten was pitching. He was University of Texas stud pitcher, you know, and he was going to be drafted high in, in, at his point in his career. And so in the, in the seventh inning, 
eighth inning, I hit a three-run homer over the, the racetrack. Now, that was a pretty good home run in those days. And it was probably 390 feet, something like that. But it was a good home run in that league. So I was feeling really good about myself. I'm rounding first base, cha-ching, you know, and counting the money. When I got to second base, I can get interest on that, you know. When I rounded third, I'm headed straight home. I see the scout get up. Walk out, and I never heard from Montreal again. <laughs> so apparently, he wasn't impressed with my uh, with my prodigious power and uh, my negotiating ability. So as it turns out, I was later drafted by the Oakland A's in a supplemental draft and got fifteen thousand dollars. Got your fifteen thousand. <laughs> got fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah. <laughs> so you go on to play for Oakland, and then Pittsburgh Pirates, Astros, Dodgers, and a sent with the Giants and then your managerial career but talk about your career talk about type of player you were what things stick out in your mind well I I have to say that uh, if I look back on it now and and I realized this when I was managing I was the kind of player that managers liked and it wasn't because I was trying to please managers is because I love to p- compete and I love to play the game and I had a lot of energy so I didn't get tired um, now, there were days I wasn't, wasn't any good, but I rarely got tired. If I did, I fought through it. So I would like to think that I was a gritty ball player, and that's why I liked the moniker of Scrap Iron. I thought it was – and I tried to live up to it. So I tried to play hard every game, and I did. So if I look back on my career, I can honestly say there was one game in Atlanta. It was raining, and I didn't round – second base really hard i kind of just jogged because I, I thought i might fall down or whatever and all this kind of stuff so i made all kinds of excuses why i didn't run hard the outfielder botched it i didn't go to third base we end up losing the game by one run because i wasn't third base and possibly getting in and i i thought about that for years later I was never going to let that happen again so um truly one time in my career i felt like i didn't give 100 percent on on an effort but um, I would say that I was tough. I, in those days, we, I was playing second base. I had people to run over me, and I got up and continued to play. I ran over people at second base. We ran over catchers in those days. It was a, it was a tougher sport then, and I would like to think that I was one of the tough guys in the sport. Speak to that with, with the modern game. Nowadays, you, you can't break up a double play. You can't run over a catcher. Uh, they're protecting the players more and I think it's taken some of the toughness and the spirit of how baseball was meant to be played what are your thoughts on that well I I would agree with that and I think unfortunately I'm a dinosaur and if you agree with me on this you're probably a dinosaur too but um, the money and the contracts have become part of that I've had this discussion with one of the great general managers in baseball Jerry Hunsinger who was my boss here when we were in Houston and never gets the kind of credit he deserves for what he put together but from his perspective, when you start signing players to multi-year contracts and you're paying them over $100 million over the life of those contracts, and that money's guaranteed, uh, if you run over a catcher and destroy his knees and he can't play for another year or might even have trouble coming back in a couple of years, yeah, uh, I can understand from his perspective why you want to do that. Um, Throwing at batters, I remember Jeff Bagwell getting hit in the hand a few times, broken hands, and his career, you know, had some down spots because that's the way we did it. Guys hit home runs, you throw, you throw, you knock them down. You 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 see if you can intimidate them. You see, and if you can't intimidate them, then you let the sleeping dog die. So what 
what I think is lost from the game is that macho, that manly man, man against man competition that I really loved in in the game. I thought that was good part. Now in football, you run at each other and you don't flinch, and you if you do, you're the weenie. In baseball, you took your your uh, you went to the plate when you knew you were going to get hit in my day, and you took your lump and you didn't winch around. You walked to first place. You might have had a broken shoulder blade, but you didn't you didn't winch. You didn't you know when you got back in the dugout, you told them. So it was you kind of wear it. You were tough. You knew these things were gonna, you know, were gonna happen. It was part of the game, and if you could be intimidated, then good. We had the advantage if our team felt like you can in- intimidate. Now, I'm not gonna mention the player's name, but when I first came up with the Oakland A's, we would play against the Kansas City Royals, and they had some good players. As a matter of fact, it was the Oakland A's and the Kansas City Royals every year fighting for the pennant. Well, in the first meeting, we would go over a scouting report. And Catfish Hunter would say on the guy that we got to that was the key guy in their lineup, he'd say, to hell with him, hit him. Well, and we'll take him out of the series. Well, as I noticed over the next couple of years, that's exactly what happened. We would hit him, take him right out of the series. It intimidated him. He would, he would, he never heard us in a series in the two years I was with the Oakland A's. And so I carried that with me. Yes, players can be intimidated. And so you've lost that in the modern day baseball game and that part. And, and I, yeah, it's old time. It's, um, Maybe it's old school. Maybe it's outdated. Maybe so. But I think that if you are negotiating for your nuclear arms tradition, there's got to be something said for intimidation, you know, when you're sitting across the table. So I would hope that whoever's negotiating on our behalf has that old-timey attitude that I'm talking about here and something that really, really matters, you know, world peace, let's say, you know. But So I, I miss that part. I hate that it's gone. I will say this, though, that um, the athletes today are way better than the athletes when I played. Now, you take the top athlete that we had. He was probably as good as the top athlete today. But there's more good top athletes in baseball today than I've ever seen. They're really terrific athletes. The World Series starts tonight. We've got the Astros versus the Braves. You played in a World Series as a player, 1979, I believe, and won. I mean, you also had the opportunity to manage the Astros in 2005. Talk about both of those experiences. Well, I, uh, 79 was, was really terrific for us. We had to get through Cincinnati's big red machine. You know, they had um, Johnny Bench and they had Joe Morgan. They had the uh, great players. Perez was on that team, Tony Perez, future Hall of Famers, that, and they were great. And they were beating everybody. And they had uh, Tom Seaver was on that team, uh, God rest his soul. And I hit a home run to tie the ball game up against against Tom Seaver the opposite way. We're talking about Oppo Power. He tried to throw a little slider down there, and he had a good one, and but he missed a couple of inches, and I hit it out of the ballpark the other way. And so uh, we ended up winning that series and getting on to play Baltimore Orioles, which had a, which had a great team. So the 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 one thing that I remember my whole life, I had you know these are what go on in how your mind works. But my whole life, I had trained hard in the off-season. I would pick out a regiment I was going to do, and I would stick with it all winter long. And my driving force, when I'm running that last sprint, when I'm really dog-tired, I'm saying, this is the last inning of the World Series, and I have a chance to win it. 
And so that was, you know, how you feel. And so now you get through the playoffs, and now the World Series is getting ready to start, and you start to say, wait a minute, my whole life I've been it's, – it's been the hunt that's that's been – it's not the kill, it's the hunt that's that's so exciting and that's the driving force. So what happens if now we win the World Series? What drives me to, to perform after that? And so, you know, I have these conversations in my mind for a few days as we're playing in the playoffs. And then I say, well, it's very simple. You want to win the second one. So it's so hard to get the first one. It's just as hard or harder to get the second one. Many guys have played their whole careers and never even gotten close to win an A-World Series and much less the second one. So, you know, I settled that question in my mind. But then when the first day of the World World Series happened and we're playing Baltimore and we walk out on the field and we – I had read in the paper that morning that there would be 80 million people watching it worldwide, and uh, all the sports writers from around the world, the Japanese sports writers had come in at that time, and they were doing it. I walk out on the field, and I'm chewing tobacco in those days, and I literally had a hard time spitting. I was so nervous. I'm, I was shaking like a leaf when when I walked out on the, on the field, and I thought, my goodness, this is, is exciting, and I'm nervous. Well first ball hit you're you relax and and it's all it's all uh, uh good after that but what's also interesting is you hear athletes talk about getting in the zone and one of the the personal struggles that you have is just how do you handle that anxiety that performance anxiety and the energy that's created when you get into those situations i explained to some people that when you're so it's that heightened sense of awareness you can literally you're looking you're standing at home plate but if somebody does something in the top deck you see it i mean you you've got this terrific peripheral vision you can hear everything that's going on so what next becomes the personal challenge is how do you channel it and so i i I had gotten to the point where i could channel that and i so in the world series i was in the zone i was hot i'd played well in the playoffs and and i was able to channel it so i took all that uh, performance anxiety, all that energy and everything out and channeled it. And boy, that's such a great feeling because usually you're tired at that time of the year, but the bat felt like a toothpick. I could, I, I felt like I'd swing and hit anybody's fastball. I felt I could run and catch the ball. And indeed, I was diving for balls that were 20 feet away from me. People <laughs> thought I was nuts, but I felt that abundant amount of energy, you know. So it was, it was a terrific, um, it was a terrific series great series a lot of people played good we won it in seven in seven games coming back from three to one being down three games to one so it was it was a lot of good time and so i was a part of that and uh, it was exciting very exciting so talk about maybe what dusty baker's feeling going into the world series i know he's never won one you got to manage in 2005, and I think you and Dusty are about the same age. We are the same age. and a matter of fact, my last year was his last year, and uh, we were San Francisco, San Francisco Giants together. So I do know Dusty, and, and uh, he's a great guy. And you'd, you'd alluded to the two, 2005 World Series earlier that I managed here in Houston. And, and the truth of the matter is, you know, that was very disappointing. I thought we had a good team. And I thought we were very equally matched. And the scores would suggest that they were, you know, I think the margin of, of losses over the four game were the least amount of any World Series prior to that, you know. So we just didn't come out. We didn't win a ball game. So I, I think in the end, their at-bats turned it out to be 
really, really tough at, tougher at bats. And, and some of that's luck because if a team makes good pitches on you, you foul those balls off, you stay in the count and you get a chance to maybe they miss a little a few inches. They kept fouling the balls off. We hit a bunch of those balls fair and, and were weak, weak balls, and we, we made outs. And so kudos to them. Can't take away anything that they did that was good. We had a good team. We just didn't get her done in that final inning. So it's very disappointing, but still exciting nonetheless. So going to Dusty – uh, I think what Dusty's trying to do is figure out his pitching rotation right, right now because that's been pretty much decimated. And I hadn't seen the Braves all year until the playoffs, and I started watching some of the games, and they're good. They're a really, really good team. And I think right now their pitching probably stands out better than ours. I think most people are going to say in this deal they would rate their pitching overall better than ours. So there's no question we have our work cut out for us. But saying this – I doubted the Astros when this season started, and I was wrong. And so I'm just, I'm hoping that 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 wrong wrongness continues all the way through this series. Because I give our offensive guys credit; they can step up and get the job done when when you don't think they can, and when it looks like it's not going to work. These guys, these guys can play. I think all of the country or world is rooting for the Braves. It seems like. Only the town of Houston likes the Astros <laughs> because of the sign-stealing yeah, mess. Yeah. And we talked about that today, and you had some strong opinions on it. You want to speak to that? Well, I, I will, and, and let's, let's uh, you know, the 600-pound gorilla in the room is we cheated. And uh, not all players cheated. Altuve didn't cheat. And uh, when, you, when you cheat and you get caught, take your punishment and go on down the road. Now, here's the thing that – and when we're going to talk about grit men, grit men – Here's what disappointed me in this whole thing. And I'm going to give a shout-out to Correa here because he was the only guy that came out and said, I cheated, Altuve didn't cheat, so back off of Altuve. He showed me some grit right there. So if you're willing to cheat, you should stand up and say, all right, this is what we did. All those guys that cheated and took advantage of it should have gotten together and said, we're the ones that did this. We'll take the punishment deservedly so but the guys that didn't cheat they don't deserve to get booed they don't deserve anything else that disappoints me because that tells me that guys aren't taking responsibility and Cora was part of it uh, uh, Beltron was part of it and you don't hear a word said about it you know and so it's it's disappointing that that men can't be men anymore and something that I did this okay let's yeah, I'm let's wrong. go on yeah. I'm, I was wrong yeah. I took advantage of it and I was wrong well let's explain the the cheating yeah. just so that there's no gray area when you managed there was a a feed in your dugout that showed the the game being played well well but, actually there's yeah. a tv feed into the clubhouse it didn't go into the dugout that was prohibited into the dugout and i didn't believe the cheating at first when i heard about it because that feed into the clubhouse is delayed so there's like a 10 second delay you wouldn't have time to look at the catcher's sign figure out what he's throwing and then relay it to somebody in the dugout you just you, just, you know the pitch has been made 
because of the delayed. So the Astros had figured out a way to, to get a live feed in there. And so that's how they were working it. Live feed, somebody figured out the catcher sign and would feed to that somebody out there, and then there'd be a whistle or a beat on the can when a breaking ball's coming. And so that's how they that's how they were doing it. And it's and it's wrong. However, there were some other teams doing this too. That doesn't make it right for the Astros. The Astros take their 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 lumps for it and take their punishment. But this has been going and ironically it's been going on for baseball forever. Now, Chris, this goes back to my old school thinking. And one of the the uh the Oakland A's manager, Bob Melvin, has been a close friend of mine for years. He was my right hand guy for six years. He was a catcher all of his his career. And so uh he had told me in two thousand seventeen these guys are cheating. I said, Bob you know how to fix that. And he says, we can't do that anymore. I said, the hell you can't do that. You go out there and you tell your pitcher and catcher, if you hear something going on over there, you know what they're doing, and they know what they're doing. You put down three straight sliders, and you tell your pitcher and catcher, the third slider is the hardest fastball you can throw right at their head. And then when the guy's laying on the ground and his heart's beating fast, you tell him, if I hear another trash can, I hear another whistle coming out of your dugout, I'm going to hit every one of you in the head. And that guy's going to get up and he's going to go in the dugout and say, boys, they got to stop it. Don't – and it's done. It's over. That right. was – so y'all That's, y'all used to police yourself. Oh yeah, you policed yourself, and when you thought somebody stealing a sign, they were going to get hit, and they were going to get hit in the head. Now you put your career in jeopardy, but if you're going to steal my signs, just blatantly steal my signs. Now if, if part of it is my fault, then a pox on my house. If I've got my the catchers going around here, and he can, you everybody down the first baseline can see his signs well that's his fault he needs to correct that but when you're doing this electronically with specifically um prohibited written into the rules the other one's kind of an unwritten rule you know that that don't steal people's signs when you're at second base and all this so that's been going on forever so the fact that you're going to defer that to some uh higher authority allowed this to all get out of hand Take care of it the old way. It's done. It's over with, and it would have been done. And none of this would have had to been an embarrassment of baseball. So during your career, there had to be a point where you thought the money may run out or I can't play baseball forever. And so you had to start thinking about life after baseball and and financially what that looks like. And you started making some investments or – uh, looking forward that I thought was unusual. A lot of players probably don't do that. Where did that come from? Where did you get that business side or the curiosity? And, and we speak to that. Well, that's a good question, and I, I don't know uh, uh, where it came from. Uh, I just have a feeling my personality was that I grew up poor. I wanted certain things. I would wanted the security. I wanted. To, I'd gone to school on a scholarship. My wife had gone to school on an athletic, or I mean, an academic scholarship, and we came out of school with loans that we had to repay. Which, in today's political climate, you know, we repaid our loans. We didn't have uh, stakes when we got out and started in baseball, and we didn't drink fancy whiskeys. We repaid our loans, and because we felt that responsibility, we had taken those out to better ourselves. And it was our responsibility to pay up, pay them back. And I still believe that way. So got that little political comment out of the way. But so I didn't I wanted to save money. So we'd already and I spoken to my wife uh, 
when we were dating and felt her out about how she felt about spending money and would she be willing to live frugally until so we could amass money. So in my mind, I don't care how much money we'd have made. Now, we ended up making nice money in baseball, but our first year we were making $500 a month. We netted $400 a month out of our paycheck. This is five months out of the year now, not for the whole year. We netted $400 a month out of the paycheck after taxes were taken out, and we managed to save enough money to go back and complete our college education. We both paid for that. So. You know, it didn't matter if I was going to make $1,000 a month, we were going to save money and we were going to plan for our future. That's the way it was going to be. I'd always, I was a business major in college and I'd always had interest in business. And I looked at baseball early on as a, as a tool, a means to an end. I, I thought, I'd like, I love playing, I want to make a living doing this, but in reality, I want to make enough money to be able to buy into a business or, or build a business and and go on because I know I couldn't play baseball forever and I might be unlucky and not only get to play but a few years injuries just not good enough things just may not go your way and so we were always planning for that future so we we saved from from day one and I looked into businesses and when I was in um, uh, uh, we got traded well when I was in Pittsburgh I got involved in an oil deal when I was in Pittsburgh with Andy Russell Andy Russell was the all pro uh, all pro and Hall of Fame linebacker for for the Pittsburgh Steelers one of them Andy Russell who was had gotten into the oil business and so I got into that oil business and it, it bothered me to no end I kept looking at that deal and I put up 100% of the money and I only got 60% of the revenue the rest of that was promoting expenses that I <laughs> I thought, that's got to be a better way. I want to be on that front end of that deal. I want to be the guy promoting everybody else. So when I got to Houston, I started a little oil company, where and, and we really didn't promote, but I had an idea. I said, look, you tell me what you want to earn. What's your number? You want to earn 20% on your number? When you hit that number, I back in for some numbers. So you got your return first before I, I got my return. And so that's what I did. I started a little oil company, and we went out and bought some stripper wells out in South Texas and started a little oil company and it um, with a guy named Glenn Smith who um, who actually built the business. And I later we later sold what little stuff I communi- uh, uh, accumulated when, it looked, when I was going to stay in baseball. And I later invested with him, and he did very, very well. And consequently, I did very, very well with him. So, um, And some other guys, um, there's a guy named Russell Gordy in Houston that I invested in some oil deals and, and did very well with. But it's, uh, it was hard-earned money, money we had saved, money we, we if we'd lost it, we'd have saved another, we'd have tried it again. That was just the mindset my wife and I had. So um, now probably, you know, my dad was a – the Calvinist, uh, you know, when you talk about religion, he was a Baptist minister, but, but more on the Calvinist side. And the Calvinists were the uh, more puritanical, more uh, work hard, be frugal, save for the rainy day. And so I'm sure that was part of my mindset from my religious upbringing and just my everyday upbringing from a, as a child. But but I followed that rule and it and it has done me well. But but I'm also of nature. My wife says I'm uh, you know like. Um, 
one of the movies says squirrel, you know, meaning that my attention gets changed real quick. So I can juggle three or four balls and I get excited about a whole bunch of things. So consequently, I have a lot of interest. And that's worked well for me. I've invested in things and lost money, but uh, but I've had a lot of interest and most of them have turned out pretty well. And most of it's turned out pretty well because I've been with very, very good people, honest, good people. You mentioned Mr. Gordy. So today we had a great time playing golf and a couple of his pilots, Robert and Bryce, nice guys. Yeah. And you told a story about Miss Gordy and how she gave you some advice. <laughs> and she had some pretty good intuition. Oh, she did. Let's go back to uh, 2005 when we're playing down the playoffs. And I happened one day, uh, I had called Russell. Uh, for for uh, some some deal as I'm going to the ballpark and Glenda answered the phone or something I think this is how it started but she answered the phone she said um, to come and I said well what do you think about the game tonight she said well I think so and so is gonna gonna have a good game well so and so had a great game he actually won the game for us and so I thought well I'm gonna call her the next day and so I <laughs> called her the next day and uh, she said well I said who's your pick to click and so she named him and she was dead right on she picked Chris Burke to hit the home run to win the ball game in the 18th inning so we I, she was on a roll so I just kept asking her all the way through the World Series and doggone it if she wasn't right the whole way on through so it's been a good fun with us to tell the story but uh, she's been a great baseball fan she's a whole lot smarter than Russell so we uh, so of course I would listen to her over Russell well they, I'm saying uh, that as I laugh yeah, of course no tongue in cheek for sure there's a quote I found and I read it to you. I'm going to read it again. You, you said you didn't particularly like it, but I'm going to let you explain it. <laughs> this comes from April 12, 1982, supposedly from Sports Illustrated. It says, they're just a nice bunch of guys, not like me. I feel if somebody's still second on me, the least he should expect is a little tobacco juice on his uniform. The Astros not only help you up after you've stolen on them, but they dust you off. Well... Uh, I'm going to say I was misquoted. <laughs> Why not? Of course, of course, I wasn't misquoted. I'm pretty sure I probably said that, and because that was the impression that I generally had of the Astros. And when I thought back, they're all nice guys. They were the nicest guys you've ever wanted to meet. They were guys you'd want your daughter to marry. They're all those kind of guys. And and uh, I was kind of a guy that didn't mind spiking you if I had a chance, you know, and uh, you know if you were standing near the bag, and I thought I had a chance to get there. Then, then I'd probably do that. And they weren't that way. They just played a straight up, um, uh, you know, very uh, good game, but just just didn't have any meanness in them. And I had a little bit of meanness in me, I'd have to say. Certainly not like Ty Cobb, but I had a little 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 bit of uh, this whole thing about intimidation we spoke about earlier. I thought there's part of some of that. And I always thought that you could intimidate the Astros. Well, as I got to know them, you certainly could not. They were all solid, solid ball players but they were nice players they were good players by contrast the Astros would speak to you if you came in and played you know and you got to know some of them as a as an opponent you go into LA the Dodgers had their nose stuck up in the air and wouldn't even acknowledge you on the same field you know so we consequently the Astros were nice people the Dodgers were horrible people well I got to know some of the Dodgers players and they weren't so bad either but the Astros were just genuinely good good players that's what I meant by that even though we were pretty good pretty good team sounds like you were saying that there's a time and place for everything you can be a hard-nosed player between the lines 
but then be a good guy after the game. Well, certainly that, yeah, certainly that was the case. I even in those days, I would have hoped that we would have been a little, a little tougher on you know, But uh, would we have played better? No, I don't think so. Everybody played as hard as they could play, and uh, so it was just they had a gentler uh, personality than the other teams I'd been on. You told me you never had an agent. You negotiated a lot of your own contracts, which today that'd be very unusual. But knowing you, I can see why you did it. Like I think you like to get people's opinions and seek advice, but ultimately you're going to make your own decision. Well, I did. You're right. And uh, I, I had a, an attorney represent me on my contract with the Astros because I wanted to do a, what's called a rabbi trust. I deferred some money, and I wanted the Astros to buy a, an annuity to back that up. So it was a little bit of – it needed some uh, legal language in that contract. It was a little different than a standard contract. So I used a, a, an attorney out of Dallas named Richard Sales, Dick Sales, who was actually from Tennessee, and he'd come to law school down here. So I'd, I'd gotten to know him, and he's he's darn good attorney. So he didn't negotiate that contract. But all the rest of them, I basically negotiated. If there was anything else that I put in there that needs some legal um, look at it, then I'd, then I'd have somebody to legally look at it. But uh, the contracts weren't as big in those days. Now, they were, they, they'd gotten big from from a historical standpoint, but if you look at them in comparison to today's contracts, <laughs> these today's contracts have gone astronomical compared to what our contracts were. That's a good segue into when you you managed, uh, or actually look over your career because you saw a lot. Today it seems that all managers are player managers. They can't really jump on a player's ass because the player makes more money than they do. Uh, Can you speak to what's evolved? And then if you want to get into what we talked about also, the analytics side too. Well, there's today's manager has to deal with a lot more uh, than than what the previous set of managers, and I'm going to say pre free agency because I think that's where things change. And I and I'll say this, and um, and I don't want people to think I'm being hypocritical because I'm I was considered a players manager, and I think a lot of managers would would be considered players managers without what's going on today um, because, uh, but prior to free agency and the managers that I knew and I would say most players agree with this if the manager said drop and give me 50 push-ups you dropped and gave him 50 push-ups you didn't ask questions and you did what they said because you knew they controlled what was going to happen to you the only way you can get away from an organization in those days if they decided to trade you if they didn't want to trade you they could send you the minor leagues they could keep you on the bench they could do whatever they wanted to in in those situations with free agency, players began to realize they had more um, more control over their own destinies than than prior to that. So it took a few years before that sank in, before players began to realize what could happen, and and manager a couple of managers probably getting fired because the player with the big contract didn't like the manager, and so the manager's going to go because he doesn't have a big contract. The player does have a big contract. We've got to make him happy. So that sort of morphed into to, to that time uh, the, way, the way it is. A manager has to deal with that today. So he has to be more persuasive in the way he manages. He can't just say, this is what's going to happen. He has to kind of work with it. I remember managing in Milwaukee, and I came up with the idea. We did not have a 
very good starting staff. We had a bunch of very, very average players. And so I came up with the idea in Milwaukee, why don't we start and try to pitch each guy three or four innings because we couldn't get six innings out of a guy. We just didn't have anybody could throw it. And the first call that we got when that floated that deal was from an agent said, you're not going to start my guy for three days, are you? He said, well, yeah, we were thinking about that. So ultimately we abandoned it part and parcel because we felt like we would have a rebellion from things out of our control. You know, I can't control the agent. And if you get a bad side of an agent, he won't let any players come your way. So you, you think about that. You know, it, maybe you decide to go ahead and do what you want to do, which is what Tampa's doing nowadays. But um, there, there, time helps in that regard. But at the time, we would have had a lot of uh, blowback on that. So it was definitely – our decision was was influenced by it. I don't think it made the decision, but it was influenced by it. So uh, the manager today also have the analytics, the Sabre Matrix guys that sit up there and say, uh, the numbers show that if you let them, uh, your starting pitcher go through the lineup the third time, the batting averages jump. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to give up runs or he's going to get beat. Um, watching the playoffs and and I watched Bueller pitch for the Dodgers and they took him out in the fourth inning in his first start against Atlanta and they lose the ball game Bueller was blowing through the lineup if I'm on the opposition I'm thinking thank God they took that guy out now we might have a chance and even Atlanta did have a chance well fast forward to the last game they left Bueller in there didn't take him out in the fourth inning the guy hits the three run homer Rosario hits a three run homer to win the ball game so the manager gets caught in all these kind of things. And I think that, um, yes, you can go in the – I think what the, the thrust is to try to take make the decision tree easy. So they say, here's what the analytics said. You do this. Come to fourth inning, take your pitcher out of it. Doesn't matter what you see. Doesn't matter that this guy's blowing him away. Doesn't matter that the guy you're going to bring in to replace him came in and was throwing up in the in the dugout, and now you don't have your best reliever when you have a lead in the game that you want to bring in. Doesn't matter that the other reliever that you're going to put in his place came in and said, I'm having trouble with my girlfriend or my wife, you know, all these other things that would go into the decision. They want to take that out and say, uh-uh, this is what it says make the change so a manager has to deal with that today too and it's a difficult uh, process because I think if you have a good manager you let him manage your team and I think I think uh, Dusty's a good manager you want to trust him and do it you hire him to manage your players let him manage the players and the game he knows what he's doing and I think we all took into um, um the analytics. We all like the numbers. Everybody looks at, well, this pitcher can't pitch against this guy. I'll tell you about, uh, I had a pitcher named Bill Wegman and, uh, when I started in Milwaukee, and he was really one of my better pitchers. But when we faced uh, uh, Toronto in our first year there, we're playing really well against Toronto, but they've got Joe. Uh, Joe Carter, who, when I looked at the numbers at the end, of, towards the end of the year, and we're we're within a couple of games of two two games of Toronto, and Bill Wegman's pitching a big game against them, and Joe Carter hit 486 against Bill Wegman with like 20 home runs and runs driven in. So I call in Wegman, and I say, Bill, look at these numbers right here. I said, this this it's entirely appropriate 
when a guy's beating you up this bad, you just hit him in the ass. Just give him a fastball and hit him in the ass. Let him know that if he's going to give you this much pain, you're going to give him a little something back. This, this is not vicious. It's not mean you're not going to end his career. And Wegman tells me, I can't do that. And I said, well, what do you mean you can't do that? And he says, well, it's against my religion. I said, well, my dad's a minister, and I don't think that religion's got anything to do with this. God would want you to play as hard as he can, so, but I'll honor that. But I said, here's what's going to happen. If the game's close early on and Carter comes up there with men on base, I'm going to take you out of the game. Sure enough, fourth inning, Carter comes up. There's a couple of guys on base. I take him out of the game. And when I take him out, he looks mad at me. And so, so But I had to take him out. Anyway, it was my conviction that yeah. I, you know, uh, that I had to do what was right for the ball club. You're, you got to manage for what's right for the ball club. You can't manage for what's right for that individual. You got to manage for what's right for the team because all the other individuals are going to know if you're managing just just for that guy. So that's how you you lose your ball club if you start managing to protect one guy. So I made the switch. Well, fast forward two weeks, we're playing in Chicago. And Bill Weckman's getting beat up a little bit. And the Cubs, I mean, the uh, White Sox has been our nemesis. They'd been beating up us on us. And so Weckman's pitching. And um, they've scored a couple of runs. And uh, Korkovice is uh, the catcher. And Wegman throws the first pitch up and in on him. Second pitch was further up and in on him. And I turned to my pitching coach, Don Skid Row, as we called him, and said, I think he's trying to hit him. And plop, the next pitch, he hit him right in the ribs. Well, Rocky Rowe comes out, who was the umpire, and throws him out of the game because he'd thrown three pitches in. And so I go out to Rocky Rowe, and I said, Rocky, what are you doing? He said, come on, Gar. He said, you know he was trying to hit him. And I said, let me tell you a story. <laughs> so I tell Rocky Rowe, I said, Rocky, two weeks ago, I asked this guy to hit Joe Carter. And he wouldn't hit Joe Carter. He said, it's against his religion. So you know how proud I am of him that he hit this guy? I don't know if he hit him on purpose or not, but I'm glad that he hit him. <laughs> and so Rocky said, well, what am I going to do? And I said, all right, I'm going to start bobbing my head up and down. You're going to have to throw me out of the game because I'm going with my pitcher. I'm proud of him. So I start throwing my hands up and all that. And Rocky's grinning. He says, okay, you're out of here. So he throws me out of the ball game. So, you know, it's it's. Um, I guess sometimes it has to get really painful before some things make sense to some people. Yep. You know, so that's a great good, story. Yeah, well, stay in Milwaukee. You told me a story about Mike Matheny, and a lot of Astros fans remember him as a catcher for the Cardinals. But I don't really know anything about him. But that story you told today was great. Won't you share that? Well, when I was managed in Milwaukee, we brought up a young catcher from the minor leagues <clears throat> to to fill in for a game that we'd had that day. Our other main catchers were. Uh, had played and this is one of them was training. my team. This is spring training. So we had them dinged up. So we we're going to bring up our prospect, which is what you do a lot of times. You give him a chance to play in a game so you can see him. And he was a he was a hot prospect. And this catcher, when we noticed when the pitcher was warming up, he's blocking all the pitches in the dirt while, while the pitcher's warming up. And so we ca we take notice and say, well, maybe he's trying too hard, you know, and all this kind of stuff to impress. Well, the Little did I know, we're playing against Kansas City. The Kansas City center fielder the previous year, our players thought that he had been stealing signs, peeking back to the catcher. Well, I didn't know it. And we got a rookie named Ricky, Ricky Bonus, and you got this young catcher that's on the mound, but the, the, the powers that be on the team had said, we're going to drill this guy on the first pitch. So <laughs> Ricky throws, misses, and then uh, throws another one and hits him. And, well, all of a sudden the bench is – you know, uh, 
empty and they're all upset and all this and so i'm going i look at the older guy i said what's going on here and he said he's still in our science gift and so but here's what what really happened uh that guy and i don't remember who he was he took a step towards the mound like he was going to go after ricky and mike matheny grabbed him by the neck and threw him on the ground and put his foot on his back and i mean literally pinned him on the ground and as i'm running out i tell doug manzalino my third base guy i said that guy's going to make our team. Now, that's true grit. <laughs> yeah. That was grit and tough. And Mike Matheny didn't make the team and became our everyday catcher. And every game I ever saw him catch, in between innings, he blocked the ball when a pitcher threw a ball in the dirt. So it wasn't fake. It wasn't nothing. He he was very proud of his skills, and he and made, he maintained them his whole career. He was very dedicated and a hardworking guy and became our catcher. Loved the guy, but, but he, he was a true tough guy. Steve Sparks, you got a story about him. He's the radio announcer now for the Astros, and – he does a great job. He's hilarious in celebrations after they win something monumental, like they just won the American League Championship to go to the World Series. And you told me a funny story about him. Why don't you share that? Oh, Steve, Steve Sparks is one of my favorite players I ever had. He was a terrific kid. And <clears throat> there's a couple of good stories about him. I'll, I'll tell you how it all started, though. In Milwaukee, we're looking for an, another pitcher, and it, and it boils down to t- – Two, two guys and Steve Sparks is one of them and I don't even remember who the other one was and <clears throat> so it was Steve was a little older he had reinvented himself he was a right-handed pitcher that had not much of a, of a fastball and not much of a breaking ball but he had, had gone back to the minor leagues over a couple of years and taught himself how to throw a knuckleball so he looked pretty good in spring training he just you know tied hitters up and had them confused and everything else so he was in the mix and so we get down to these two guys in a room. All our coaches towards the end of spring training were trying to decide on who's going to team. So some guys made a case for the other pitcher, and some guys made the case for for um, Steve Sparks. So the room went silent. Now it, you know, I'm going to have to make the decision, not right on the spot, but I'm just jotting down what I'd heard and and, and making a mental note of what I'd heard. And then all of a sudden, somebody says. Have you seen his wife? <laughs> so, this is like, yeah, this is before Moneyball. This is before it was in the movie. And I said, no, should I? He said, yes. And so I made it a point that day. I ran into uh, Michelle Sparks, and Steve Sparks made the team. So <laughs> I can tell you she was doggone good looking and still is a lovely lady. But uh, Steve deserved to make the team. But his wife was the one that but that pushed the envelope in his way. So that was the first thing. And so Steve pitched well for me. I took him to Detroit, and he pitched well for me in Detroit. But while in Milwaukee, after he'd made the team in the second year there, my uh, boss, Sal Bando, had run across, he'd gotten to know these guys that were, they were muscle heads. They were, you know, big old strong guys, and they were a religious group. There were like four of them, and they were religious-based, but they were um, uh, enthusiastic speakers, and they were motivational uh, speakers. And so Sal asked me if it'd be okay to bring them into spring training. And so oh, that's a good idea. Let's try that. So in spring training, they come in, and these guys, and they were great. They were really good. They're running around performing feats of strength, like taking a big old bar of steel and bending it over their nose, you know, and stuff like that. And they get you hooting and hollering, yeah, yeah, go, go, go. And so, and and they have a little religious message that they, and, and motivational message that they drop in between these things. It was really, really good. The final act 
was we were in Phoenix, and a guy jumps up on the table, and he's getting the guys pumped up. Now, we got 40 guys in the room, and they're, they're all starting to chant now. And he said, I'm going to tear this Phoenix phone book, and it's literally like six inches thick. <laughs> I'm going to tear it in two. Oh, all right, so everybody's hollering, hooting and hollering, and they get going. And so he gets it in the right position and rips it in two, and everybody goes crazy, and then that's the end of the deal. Well, they leave the room, and all the guys are clapping and cheering. Steve Sparks jumps up on the table and starts going like this, you know, urging everybody to clap on for him. And he grabs the Phoenix phone book, and he's going to rip it open, and he, he pulls on it really hard. And all of a sudden, he drops to the ground in in pain. And we're all laughing. We think, boy, he's putting a joke on. You know, was it turned out? He dislocated his right shoulder. The trainers, after a few minutes, we walk over, and he's literally crying in pain. Everybody thinks he's kidding because he's a jokester anyway. And they put their foot right on his shoulder and stick it back in the joint. So we didn't have Steve Sparks for the first three months of the season. He had to heal from trying to rip a Phoenix phone book in Tart. So I love to tell that story every time uh, that Steve Sparks and I are in public. So I hope this goes out to a lot of people in the Houston area. <laughs> I hope he listens. Yeah. yeah we'll okay. have to find him. Talk about replay in baseball and how you feel about it. Um, I think I shared with you why I don't like it, really for one aspect, but I want to hear your thoughts. Well, I, I, I don't like it because it slows the game down. That's one part I don't like. But I do like it because it gets it right. And uh, let me say this. I think most umpires are extremely conscientious. Uh, I think all umpires are very conscientious, actually. Unfortunately, some are better than others. But I think they're all conscientious. They want to try to get it right. And uh, But – Let's just face it, sometimes they don't. And I am amazed and have been amazed over the years when I go back and look at these replays. And, you, you I mean, you literally you're going frame by frame to determine whether he was out or safe or, or what happened, you know. And sometimes you can't tell. And these guys are tasked with making that call on the spur of the moment. So I'm amazed that they get most of them right. But the ones they don't, I'm kind of okay with, uh, with the uh, – uh, the uh, replay now, and um, and I think fans should accept it. Unfortunately, I have to say that my beloved Tennessee Volunteer football team, we had a replay that showed that the referees were right in the, this past weekend, and they started throwing crap on the field, and it embarrasses the hell out of all of us when that happens, and that just shouldn't happen. Uh, you know, uh, just should not happen, and and that's why the replays are good. The mm-hmm. replay gives you the defense most of the time. On a rare occasion, it's not definitive, and so it still has to go maybe your way or against you, but most of the time it, it works. Yeah, with the sports betting becoming more popular and being legal, I think it's it's good for that aspect. What I miss is just the good old-fashioned arguments, <laughs> though. You never yeah. see a manager get thrown out anymore. Yeah, well, yeah, you don't, and and so that's discouraged with the replays. They, they kind of said, look, we're, we're going to stop the arguments because you're going to get your – chance at replay and so you don't do that but i think every now and then it does good to go argue with an umpire i think it pumps up the team and and i would say that most of the time in those arguments that i had where i'm kicking dirt it was to fire up my team which i thought were sound asleep on the bench i wanted to see them that i'm mad you know and you need to get mad you know not necessarily to referee but or the umpire but uh, that's that was good old days those were the good old days have you always been someone that spoke his mind uh, and shared opinions or is that come later in life no I think I probably have always done that but I, I I would say that I don't 
um, a, a little bit reserved on that. I don't. I don't. I, I I have been around people that are even more opinionated than me, and I'm very opinionated. But it, for the most part, I'm sensitive about uh, some people. But generally. I will speak my mind, maybe in a softer tone than some other people I've known. I'm not don't necessarily want to get in your face on if I have a different opinion of yours, but I sure would like to express my opinion, so I do that. Yeah, and a back and forth of sharing of thoughts. It sounds like, but well, it, I think that's how society moves forward, and this is what's broken my heart today with what I'm seeing. I, I'm seeing. With social media, with the shutdown of the opposition, um, you can't have a conversation about gays, whether, you ha- whether you're religiously opposed or whether you're morally opposed or whether you just think they're wrong. You can't have a, a conversation about that. You can't have a conversation with blacks about racism. You can't have a conversation about politics and whether you agree with immigration or not, you know, with free borders or not. You can't have a conversation with climate change. All these things are important issues in our society, and the way society a free society should move and should evolve is open discussion now we're going to disagree but we get through it and we and we find a way to live together not shut people down so this is wrong it's not good for our society i just just finished reading a book called The Spy and the Traitor. And it was the, uh, 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 by all accounts, an extremely accurate account of the greatest Russian spy, uh, Gordievsky. His name was Oleg Gordievsky. And what it, the description of Russia and why he, de, why he became a traitor and decided to, to give important information was because there was no freedom in Russia. And when you read it, it's exactly where we're headed today. It, if we're not already there and you know certainly on social media now you and i can have this in our right here in our room and we can have it a discussion in the locker room and even at the dinner table but if i tried to send you a text i'm going to get shut down or you're going to get shut down if if somebody at facebook or twitter doesn't agree with our with our 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 thoughts and it's several key important issues on that's going on in our society today all those i just mentioned and so um it's wrong, it's not good, and it will not end well. Yeah, part of this movement or part of the Gritman idea is that we don't get offended and we try hard not to offend. And it's just funny today how if you stand for something, people automatically think you're against something. And sometimes that's the case if it's a yes or no type vote. But I've got some feedback that the grit men or grit man means we don't like women. And I said, that's ridiculous. We want, we want strong men. We yeah. also want strong women. I mean, yeah. we're husbands and you're a, a grandpa and we're dads. We, we love women and we, and we need strong women. We need strong men and, and all that's good. I think it is all good. And I also, if I like the traditional man and woman relationship, that doesn't make me a bad person. It doesn't make me wrong if I like that, if I want that for my kids, and if I want that taught to my kids and grandkids. So the traditional stance of that. Now, I also agree with you that women have become strong, and because men have failed in their responsibilities in a great sense, women have been forced into the workforce when they would have rather have been mothers in a lot of cases. And so I think there's responsibility all around here that has been shirked and that has been um, disregarded, 
and it's and it's not been good for our society. So, um, yes, you're absolutely right that having conversations, disagreeing conversations, where where people can be violently or, or I don't want to say violently opposed, but, but vigorously opposed, is is a good way for society to to should move forward. But shutting everybody out and saying and just just not allowing conversation is not a good way to to live it's not a good way for society to move well i believe we need more grit in the world and more strong men and amen brother preaching to the crowd here on that one you've lived your life as a man of grit i've watched it got to know you and i just enjoy being around you and thank you for taking the time to talk to our listeners and share your wisdom and your grit well, thank you, uh, Chris, and, and I, I think it's important because I think there's people out there in the world like you that, that were, are willing to do something. Now, I've sat over here and complained for the last few years about how this is going, and I've got to commend you because you're doing something about it. You're having the conversation that that should be had. You're actually doing something. And so um, you guys, the younger crowd, are the ones that understand this social media thing better than, than us older guys. And it's a it's it's a good tool. It's a it's a great tool when it's not used against one segment of society. So carry on. I hope wish you the best on this. And now I'm going to get my podcast up and running so I can listen to everybody else you're going to talk to because I think this is the time for this conversation. Well, thank you, Phil. Guys, he's a lot like nails. He plays like nails. He's tough as nails. He likes to call himself Grit Man. Whatever that means. I saw him.